Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. I'm talking to Louis Martins. Louis lives in Portugal. He's one of my listeners, and he wrote me an email a little while back suggesting, uh, actually giving an answer to one of my other listeners that wanted to learn more about fiberglassing. And in, and in your email, Louis, I'm just going to read it. You said, you mentioned that one of my listeners had asked about uh, learning to fiberglass, and you said, there's a great YouTube site out there called Boatworks Today that teaches or has some videos on how to fiberglass. And you said it's much better to look at examples of fiberglassing versus trying to explain how to fiberglass in a podcast. And then you told me you were working on another boat, and I thought it would be interesting to our listeners to hear about your adventures in in boat building. So first of all, tell me about yourself. How old are you, where you're located, and what you're working on? Hi, friends. Uh, well, like you said, I'm Luis. I'm 38 years old, and I live in Lisbon, Portugal. And I, I live uh, by the river, by the Tagus River, very close to the place where they did the uh, Volvo Ocean Race Village. So I'm looking on Google Earth, and I see there's a big inlet in Lisbon. Are you on that big bay on the inside or near the outside then? Uh, on the inside. Uh, if you look closer on the inlet, there is a lighthouse right in the middle of the river. It's called the Bugiu uh, Lighthouse, and I'm in the north bank. Okay, because there's a marina on the north shore there. Is that where you're talking about? Yes, there are uh, one, two, three, uh, four marinas uh, in Lisbon. Uh, And from my balcony window, I can see uh, the first one coming from the Atlantic. Yeah, I see there's actually another marina just a little farther down for smaller boats, it looks like. Uh, which, what is the name? Okay, let me it? zoom in on this. Puerto en Belim? Yes, Puerto de Blay. Yes. Blay. Yeah, Blay, that's the one I see from my balcony window. Is that where your boat's at? Uh, no, my boat, my boat is further west, uh, in the boatyard at Centro Nautico de Algeas. Uh, you will see... A very small peninsula-like thing on Google Earth. That's where my boat is. Okay, I see a haul-out facility and a big parking lot right there. Yes, yes, that's it. All right, but that's there's it. no boat. There's no boats in this picture here, so it must be filled up with boats now. Uh, it must be a very old picture because um, last time I checked on Google Maps. Uh, You're right. It says 2001. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> if you go on Google Maps, it will show you a few boats there, quite a few. 
So that's where you're located, and that's fairly yes. close to where you live then? Yes, yes. Uh, it's five minutes by car from my house to the boatyard, which is great because I can go there, uh, work on my boat for a couple of hours, and come back home. And what do you do for a career? I'm an IT consultant. Uh, I'm a SharePoint consultant, Microsoft SharePoint. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell me how you became a sailor. Well, um, before I got married 10 years ago, uh, I had this crazy idea of living on a boat. Uh, but uh, it never happened. And then I got married, and it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> But uh, I always had this interest, interest in the sea. Uh, I'm actually a surfer as well. And I like the sea. I like to go surfing. And now I like to go uh, sailing. And three years ago, I was in the Algarve on holiday. And there were some uh, hobby cats on the beach. And, uh, but I didn't know how to sail. So I went to the rental office and said, well, I would really like to, to sail uh, but I don't know how. Uh, and they said that they could give me some lessons. And I took some. And by the sixth lesson, they told me, well, the dinghy is here on the beach, ready, ready to go. If you are, on, if you are in trouble, we can go and get you. Um, otherwise, you can go on your own. Uh, you already know everything. Uh, so I went single-handed. And it was a blast. And since then... I took some more lessons uh, sailing uh, a sailboat, uh, and I loved it. And I also took uh, classes to get my license to sail. Uh, I don't know, in the U.S., I don't think you are required to get a license. Uh, in some European countries, you are not required, like in Britain, uh, in Belgium, you are in France. I don't think you're required to have a license, but in Portugal you do. Uh, so I went to get some lessons, uh, took an exam, and now I have... Um, first I took the local skipper exam, and then I took the coastal skipper exam, and this year I'm taking lessons to the ocean skipper exam. Who are the who gives the exams? Is it somebody? Is it a Portuguese authority? Or authority. It, okay. Yes, it's the Portuguese maritime authorities, and they require that you do a one-year interval between each uh, exam, and you must start uh, at the local skipper exam. So, uh, but the funny thing is that you can do all these all these exams and get all these licenses without stepping foot on the sailboat <laughs> yes <laughs> and you, you even you even have to know how to do celestial navigation in the ocean skipper but you don't have to be on a sailboat on a boat for that matter a motorboat whatever <laughs> it's very very funny yes yes so i went on my own and took some classes uh outside of that course uh, and uh, I learned how to sail a sailboat, how to reef the mainsail, uh, how to do all the maneuvers uh, that I already knew how to do in a hobby cat, uh, 
but then on a sailboat, on a 30-foot sailboat, is uh, something different. So that's where you learn to sail on a, on a catamaran. Now, had you been on big boats before? Had you been on a monohull before? Or is it no, mainly no, catamarans? No. Never, never. I learned how to sail on the on the Obicat, and then I had some uh, extra lessons on. Um, uh, it's an LN thirty. Uh, LN boats are built in uh, Eastern Europe. I don't know exactly where right now, uh, but it's in Eastern Europe, and it it is a very good boat. Uh, sometimes I go. To sail with the, the guy that uh, that has that LN30, uh, and it, it's a very fine boat. It's very fast. It's very nervous. Uh, we have to sail it with the tiller in one hand and uh, main sheet in the other because uh, in the gust you really need to let that main sheet go. Otherwise, the boat will nearly knock down. <laughs> So it's a tender boat then. Uh, it's yes, it's very tender. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a, it, although it's a cruising boat, it was built uh, uh, with uh, racing in mind for the cruiser that enjoys racing and enjoys sailing fast. Okay. okay. So it has a very tall uh, rig for that uh, boat size. So while we've been talking, I've been sort of uh, browsing around your website. So let's give some people where, where they can look at your projects and pictures of your boat. It's, it's go ahead and give the URL on your website. Uh, it's uh, dovetailkid.com. Uh, dovetail as in the woodworking giant. Uh, and uh, well, I, I don't post very often. Uh, running a blog, uh, it's serious work. Uh, <laughs> some people think that running a blog is easy. Uh, it is easy, but it takes time. And to write a post and to process the images for that post, sometimes I take one or two hours. It's not like 10 minutes and you're ready to go. Uh, well, I think you can do that, but it wouldn't be to the standard I would like it to be. I've been looking at your, some of your photographs and some of your projects, and I think you're doing a great job on it. Oh, thank you, friends. Thank you. Uh, like I said, I just don't post very often. Uh, sometimes I'm working on the boat, and I take lots of photos, and I think, well, this will be a great post. Uh, but some things I never post because uh, it takes time. And uh, usually all my free time go to the boat, not the blog. All right. So let's get back to the boat. Tell me how you ended up with the boat you have and what made you choose that boat. Okay. Uh, I started researching boats right after I got back from the Algarve that summer, three years ago. Uh, All right, so for, so for our, for our geographically challenged Americans, tell them where the Algarve is. The Algarve is the south the south coast of Portugal. It's very sunny. It's very hot. Uh, the water is very warm, uh, and it's great. And 
Lagos. Lagos. Lagos, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's, and I think that's the first port as you come around uh, from yes. the Cape there. Yes. If you if you if you come from uh, transatlantic ocean voyage, uh, Lagos is usual usually your first port of call. That's where I uh, ended up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's also Villa Mora with the great marina as well. And uh, Portimão has a good marina as well. Uh, and then uh, there are a few other marinas in the Algarve. Uh, and I was on holiday very close, like 20 kilometers away from the Spanish border, uh, where the water is very warm and uh, it isn't as crowded as uh, the western side of the Algarve, the western, uh, the western coast. So, getting back to the story, just that little side note of letting people know yeah. where you were, where you, where you were traveling. So, continue on with your story then on how you right. ended up with so your boat. I got back from the Algarve with this bug, this sailing bug, and thinking, well. Now I'm really going to get a sailboat. I'm going to learn how to sail properly. I'm going to take the classes for the exams, for the license. And um, I started researching. And uh, I f- through my researches, I found out that I wanted a classic boat, uh, not a flat-bottom modern production boat with a thin keel and uh, boats that are not so great for ocean sailing. And I started researching, but the Portuguese market, I found out, is not very keen on classic sailboats. There are lots and lots of Benetos and Genos and Bavarias. Uh, These are all uh, European boats, uh, but I'm sure that... uh, Americans know what I'm talking about. Uh, and if you want a Beneteau, uh, you go to a broker and he will, he will have like tens of those for you ready. But if you, tell, if you tell the broker, no, I want a classic boat, I want a full kill boat, uh, they will tell you, well, we don't have any of those. <laughs> so it wasn't easy. But in the end, I found uh, three boats that uh, were within, both within my price range and uh, both had, uh, were classic boats. Uh, one, the first one was the Centurion 32. It's a Vauquier Centurion. It's a, it's a French-built boat. I don't know if you know that boat. Uh, it's a... It's a fin keel boat, but it's very classic. Uh, but someone someone beat me to the deal, uh, and I wasn't able to buy that one. It was uh, it was a fine boat. I, I even went to see the boat, uh, and I negotiated the price with the owner of the boat. Well, actually, with the the brothers, uh, the brother of the owner, uh, and I think that was one of the problems because then. Uh, the actual owner received a higher offer from someone else. So uh, I couldn't buy that one. Then I saw uh, a Dufour uh, 30. Uh, 
it's also French boat, uh, but that boat is very narrow. It's 30 foot long, but uh, it's like eight feet wide, and uh, it's uh, well, it doesn't have a V berth. Uh, the forward area is just a sail uh, storage area. The saloon has no table in the middle, just two very narrow bunks uh, on each side. And the cockpit was very small and very narrow. And I didn't like that one very much. Like, I, I want to go sailing uh, for a few days on holiday. Nah, I can't do that on, on that boat. Uh, I want to go sailing with some friends uh, in the river. Uh, I don't think I can accommodate some friends in that cockpit. Uh, maybe three people would be okay, but more than that, no. So I gave up on that one. And then I saw this one, the one I got, which is a Morgan 31. Uh, it's 31 foot long and 10 feet wide. Uh, and it's very roomy. Uh, it has a proper chart table. It has a table in the, uh, in the middle of the saloon. It has a V-berth. It has a area uh, for the head. Uh, it has a good cockpit that can sit four people very comfortably, uh, maybe six people. And I liked it. I liked the boat very much. But it was, the boat was in very rough condition. And uh, the asking price was 25,000 euro. And I told the broker, well, I like the boat, but the boat it is not worth 25,000 euro. It had to be in better condition. And so I continued uh, researching and I came back to this boat and I actually bought it. So you bought a boat. Now you're a proud boat owner and the work begins. What, uh, what have you done to your boat and what did you decide that needs to be done to your boat and where are you in the process? Okay. Um, I had to take the boat apart, literally. <laughs> uh, and some of the guys at the boatyard, uh, the workers uh, that work at the boatyard, uh, make fun of me because they tell me, well, you don't have a boat anymore. You have a bunch of pieces of a boat. And uh, that's because I took the boat apart. I removed the rig. I took the mast down. Uh, I removed every single fitting from the deck, winches, uh, cleats, uh, everything. And I covered all the holes with fiberglass. So now I have a clean deck to start with. And uh, I also removed... Uh, the cabinets from the V-berth that were rot uh, from the, all the water infiltrations. And basically, uh, I had to remove the ceiling as well. Uh, it had um, a vinyl ceiling with foam-backed uh, foam vinyl, something like that, uh, glued to the ceiling. But because of all the water infiltrations, uh, it was full of mold, uh, and I had to remove all that and to actually grind the ceiling with the angle grinder uh, to get rid of all the 
glue residue and everything so uh, from the interior of the boat what I have what I still have is the engine compartment the galley and the chart table everything else has been removed the head uh, the V-birth cabinets uh, everything so I have a very spacious boat right now <laughs> <laughs> Now is the soul gone too then as well? Did you take it? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's for refit uh, stage two, uh, but I still want to. <coughs> I have this idea that uh, next summer I will put the boat on the water. Uh, I will finish all the exterior w work by then, by next summer. I uh, will put the rig back up. Uh, I've already started painting the mast as well because the the, the mast was black anodized, uh, but it was uh, well in bad shape. Uh, the mast is still very solid, but uh, aesthetically it was very ugly, and uh, there were lots of scratches. And uh, if I don't take care of it right now, it will start to get serious corrosion problems so i'm going to paint the mast uh, i'm going to install new rigging standing rigging and uh, put the mast back on uh, fair the deck because i had to grind all the anti-skid paint from the deck uh, i'm going to fair the deck paint it put new anti-skid paint the top sides put some uh, anti-fall in the bottom and launch the boat next summer. Are you yeah. are you doing this all by yourself or do you have a helper that's helping you a little bit? Mostly myself. Uh, and uh, sometimes, like I, I hired this guy uh, for a few days to clean the ceiling and to grind the anti-skid paint from the deck and to sand the bottom. And now I'm going to hire him again to help me with the mast. And, and then I don't know, because you see, I'm a very perfectionist guy. Uh, it's one of my flaws, I'm very perfectionist. And, um, but I am skilled. Uh, I know that I am skilled and I have other people telling, telling me that I am skilled, so I, do think that I know what I'm doing and sometimes I think that I can do a pretty good job why hire someone to do that job for me and the quality may not be what I wanted so uh, usually I tend to do all the work myself and also you don't have to pay somebody when you're doing it yourself yes yes it's uh, well the materials that you have to use, like fiberglass, epoxy, all the marine-grade paints, are already pretty expensive. And if, on top of that, you had uh, labor, it gets seriously expensive. So it may take me more time, but uh, I will do it. Now, when you, when you put the boat in the water... Uh, let me ask a couple questions uh, that always interest me. When you bought the boat, was it paid VAT or not VAT paid? It was VAT paid. Okay. Yes. Uh, the boat had been sailed from South Africa 
to uh, Portugal sometime in the 90s, I think, uh, from the previous registrations in Portugal, I could see that. Uh, so it was VAT. You've already given me an outline of the projects. What has been the most difficult thing so far? Uh, the most, I don't think it was the most difficult, but it was the most time-consuming, and it was repairing the Autodeck joint. Uh, the boat was built uh, in a mold, in two molds actually, one mold for the hull, one mold for the deck, like your boat, probably, right? Uh, so uh, then both uh, the deck and the hull are glued and screwed together. And uh, when I, the first time I looked at the boat, I noticed that there was a, a, an airline crack going all around the boat. But I thought, <laughs> Oh, I think I, I think I, I didn't want to know, and I thought that uh, it was just something minor and cosmetic that I could easily repair with some filler and a new coat of paint. Uh, but then, okay, I, I have to I have to give some more detail to this. Uh, when I when I started removing everything from the deck, one of the things that I had to remove was the tow rail. It had an aluminium tow rail around the boat, like most boats do, or many boats do. And uh, this aluminium tow rail was uh, bolted with uh, machine screws every eight centimeters, roughly three inches apart. And uh, I had to remove all these, and it's like uh, 90-something bolts on each side of the boat. And it was a big job because, you see, stainless steel screw bolts and aluminium don't go hand in hand <laughs> in salt water. They freeze together, don't they? Yes, yes. Like, half of them were basically welded uh, and I had to cut them with the angle grinder. Uh, so in the end, I had like uh, 100 pieces of the rail and lots and lots of uh, small bolts or uh, parts of bolts. And I had to remove all that uh, because most of these bolts were leaking. Uh, I remember one day when I was removing the cabinets from the V-berth and these cabinets were fiberglassed to the hull and to the deck and uh, to the ceiling, and I had to cut them with the angle grinder, and uh, yeah, big job. You uh, know, you know, listening to you, I'm just starting to itch. I'm just starting to itch. <laughs> yes, it was an itchy uh, job to say the least. Uh, yes, fiberglass uh, dust is very itchy, and uh, so I I cut all that uh, with the angle grinder. And uh, it was raining. I came back the next day and I could see uh, where it was leaking because the, all the walls inside the boat were covered with dust. Uh, and I could see uh, strips of water running through. 
coming from each bolt, almost every bolt. So almost every bolt was leaking. So I had to remove all those. And, uh, but then I started looking more carefully uh, at that uh, airline crack. And one day I looked at it and I decided, well, I really, really have to see what's going on underneath the paint, underneath that, that tiny airline crack. So I fired the angle grinder and I started to remove paint and gel coat and everything until I reached fiberglass. And when I reached fiberglass, I saw, uh, and it's on my website, I saw what was going on. And the, fi- the epoxy glue that was used to fill the gap between the hole and the deck had failed. And you could literally pull it out with your hand. With a pair of pliers, you would reach in, pull it, and it would come out. Oh. So, uh, so what I had to do, I, I started in a, with a small section on the stern of the boat. Uh, I tend to do things like uh, on small sections to inspect first uh, to see if there is a really big problem, uh, if I can do it myself. Uh, usually I can. Uh, in that case, I saw uh, what was going on and I, I decided that I had to grind all around the boat like about three inches about four yeah three four inches it looks like all around the boat yeah then. three four inches uh on the deck side and three four inches on the whole side on the top side uh around that joint uh i had to clean everything with the angle grinder and uh, fill it with epoxy uh thickened epoxy again uh but then while i was uh grinding and it took me like uh, two or three days to grind everything and to clean the joint and everything uh, plus an additional two or three days to remove the tow rail <laughs> so it's uh, it was already a week worth of uh, work uh, I decided to send an email to the designer of the boat uh, Angelo Levranos uh, and um, I explained him what was going on, and he suggested that, uh, and I told him that I, I had removed the tow rail, and I was um, going to build a new wooden tow rail, and he suggested that, due to the age of the boat, of the boat, and uh, the method of construction, I should maintain all the screws, all the boats. Uh, in the hull to deck giant, but I, instead of putting all those bolts through the tow rail, I could countersink every single bolt, uh, bolt hole, put uh, uh, machine screws with uh, countersink heads with a nut and a washer underneath uh, to give it a mechanical structure. And then fill all the the, the joint, uh, the gap uh, that stays uh, between the two, uh, tiny gap. Fill that with epoxy, thickened epoxy. And it suggested that uh, I could fiberglass 
above, uh, on top of those bolts, like doing an L-shape uh, fiberglass fiberglassing to join the hull and the deck, both to join the hull and the deck and to cover all those uh, bolt heads. Uh, so now it's waterproof. Okay, so you basically put a piece of fiberglass that lapped from the hull onto the top sides of the, uh, of, I mean, from the top sides of the hull onto the deck. So it just goes yes. up and over there. Yeah, and I see a picture here where it looks like you've done it, and now you put some putty in, and it looks like you've got to fair that putty out. Yes, and, uh, then I put some uh, epoxy putty, and then I had to sand it. Then I put some more, and I had to sand it. And after three times uh, of putting some epoxy fairing compound and sanding it flat, it is now very flat and very smooth, ready for paint. <laughs> it's giving my uh, elbow tendonitis thinking about this, and I'm itching looking at this. <laughs> yes, and, and, and I had to sand that with a longboard by hand to maintain all the curvature in the hull. Yes. yes. You're not doing it with uh, belt sanders, that's for sure. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> so is that where we're at right now? Uh, are, are you, have you painted the boat now, or is it sitting? Mm, no. Then it started to rain uh, <coughs> because winter came or autumn came started to rain and I had to put that on a, on hold. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> also because I haven't decided what color I'm going to paint it. Am I going to paint it white? Am I going to paint it uh, dark blue? So before I decide that, uh, I still, uh, I put that on hold. And also because I still need to fear uh, the deck. The deck uh, now has uh, exposed fiberglass. So I need to fair the deck, but I need sunny days. And uh, once the deck is fared, as well as the hull, which is uh, now completed, I uh, will be ready for paint. But, uh, like I told you, I like to do things in small scale and painting the top sides of the boat is far from small scale. So I decided to tackle a smaller job and it was painting the boom. I told you I, I was going to paint the mast, the boom as well. So the boom is only like 10, 14 feet long. Uh, I'm going to, no, 13 feet. I'm going to paint, I'm painting that right now. Um, I Start, I'm working with, with uh, Interlux Perfection paint, uh, very good paint, very difficult to apply uh, to a good standard by roller or by brush. Yeah, contrary to what they say in the label. Well, I think I'm a pretty handy guy and uh, even the even the the painter at the boatyard. Uh, well, I spent so much time at the boatyard that uh, I got friends with uh, some of the guys that work there full time, and uh, he told me, the painter told me, well, you 
you you did very very good job preparing the boom putting epoxy primer sanding everything smooth and flat filling every ding and scratch with uh, filler uh, sanding it very smooth the guy that's going to paint that if he doesn't paint it perfectly it's his fault not it's not the prepare the guy that prepared it uh, at fault you spend more time preparing than painting yes yeah. If you want to learn to sail, the first thing you need to do is learn the terminology. I've got an audio series of lessons, lessons for the ASA 101 exam, which is the first American Sailing Association certification. It's the basic keelboat certification. So I put together a series of audio lessons. I think they're over eight hours in length and maybe nine hours, eight to nine hours in length for the ASA exam number 101, which is the basic keelboat certification. Now, in addition to that, I also have audio lessons for the ASA 103 and the ASA 104. Now, if you want to do bareboat chartering, you need to get some sort of an international certification. And the one that's most common in the United States is the American Sailing Association certification, ASA 104. And that's the bareboat certification that you need to be able to charter a boat from most of the charter companies. Now, I cannot teach you to sail in an audio course, but I can prepare you for the written portion of the examination. And I try to make these lessons interesting by peppering the lessons with personal anecdotes of my experiences while sailing over the last 30 years. So, uh, if that's of interest to you, please go to the website, medsailor.com, check out the products that I have for sale, and if they're of interest to you, go ahead and buy them. If you download them through Gumroad, they will come as an MP3 files. Now, the last thing I want to encourage you to do is if you like these podcasts, tell your friends about them. And if you have a chance, go into the iTunes podcast directory or whatever podcast directory you use and write a positive review. All right, let's get back to the interview. So let me ask you, let me ask you a question because it's coming on winter and I assume you want to work on the boat through the winter and it's in a boat yard, are you going to make a temporary uh, shelter over the top of it so it's easier to work? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, I have never seen anything like that here, around here. Uh, people just wait for sunny days. Even even the, the, the guys, the, the boat yard is a full-service boat yard. Uh, that allows owners to work on their boat on their boats as well, and even the guys at the boatyard, when it's raining, it's raining. Period. They can't do anything. Uh, when it's raining, it's raining. Period. <laughs> okay. So nobody works in the rain then in, in the boatyards then, or they work on other projects then. Yes, they t they tend to work on something else. Yes. Now, do you have a, a a woodworking shop of your own at your flat, or where do you do your woodworking at? I do woodworking in my parking space in the basement of the building. Okay, but it's so it's an inside space then. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes, I can do some woodworking there, and if it's raining, I can work on the interior of the boat. I still have to refurbish the V-berth and everything else, do maintenance on, on the engine. So there are lots of things I can do 
inside the boat. So all the winches are still in good shape, is that correct? Oh, yes, fortunately. I had, uh, I had like uh, five Barlow winches. Uh, there are Australian winches, no longer manufactured, uh, very difficult to get parts. Uh, but uh, at, at the time they were built, they were the brand to go for. It was like top of the line. They are a stainless steel, uh, solid stainless steel winches. Uh, the main winches are uh, the size of Lumar 40. Uh, for this boat, they are very substantial winches. They're very solid. And I, I really fixed uh, all of them during the winter. Okay, so you've, Last re winter. you've re greased and rebuilt the winches. So I'm just yes. let's just go through this so I can put in my own mind um, what expenses you're going through. First of all, you got all the expenses of the fairing and the the fiberglass and the epoxy and that sort of thing, but you've got a decent set of uh, winches. How are the sails? Are the sails in good shape? The sails were in good shape. Fortunately, yes. Uh, I don't think the boat was sailed very much. Uh, prior to buying it, the broker told me that uh, they had the boat for sale for uh, a year, and uh, he knew that the boat had been uh, parked, literally parked, in a marina for a couple of years. Now, what was the final price you ended up paying for the boat then? What was the negotiated price? It was 11,000. 11,000 euros then? Yes, from the asking price, 25,000. Okay, and what kind of engine does it have? It has a buck, uh, book, uh, yeah, book engine, uh, book B-U-H-K. Uh, it's a Danish-built uh, uh, engine, uh, diesel. Uh, it's very popular in the UK. Still, still very popular. Still, uh, parts available. So you got a good engine, uh, good sails, a good mast. Uh, after you're done with the hull and deck, you'll have a, a solid, seaworthy vessel. Um, yes. And after you, I install new standing rigging. Right. Okay. Because so, that one was okay. <laughs> toasted. Right. So are you going to go with the synthetic rigging and do it yourself, or are you going to go with uh, stainless steel rigging? Well, actually, I'm going with synthetics. Uh, yes. Uh, actually, uh, it's this is a very small world uh, in this electronic age. Uh, one day, I sent an email to Andy Shell from Five Nine North, and uh, I had this idea. Well, he had this idea, and I had the idea that we could collaborate for a specific web project. Uh, but he was very busy, like he usually is, and he told me that at the moment he didn't have time for that. But he was working on a web project for Coligo Marine. You know Coligo mm -hmm. Marine? Right, yeah. They're the ones that yeah. make the synthetic standing rigging, right. Yes, sure. Uh, have you visited their uh, new website? I have. I looked at it a couple weeks ago, and I thought, well, this is interesting because I'm exploring the idea of starting to replace some of my rigging, too. Yeah, the new website is much, much better. Uh, and the, 
Andy and uh, the guys at Coligo did a brilliant job. I uh, And then Andy told me, well, I need help with this project uh, specifically to build, to, to develop the rig builder. And I am a web developer by trade. Uh, usually these days I focus on SharePoint consulting, but uh, I know everything about web development. And he wanted to build uh, this uh, rig builder. I advise you to check that on the Coligo site. Okay. I've got a, I, I've reached out to the owner. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but we plan on it's doing a... John Frenta. Right. I've talked to him uh, on the phone, and he, he said, yeah, I want to do a podcast with you, and we'll get that up oh, sometime, hopefully, in the next six months. It's just a, a matter of scheduling it. So I'm interested in learning from him and talking to him. Because uh, it looks like that's the route more and more sailors are going is the synthetic standing rigging. I I don't know if it's uh, more and more. Uh, at least in the Portuguese market, like zero <laughs> percent. <laughs> so you're going to be a pioneer in the Portuguese market. Yes, everyone I talk about uh, with about it, uh, they tell me that I am crazy. That synthetic rigging is only for um, racing boats, that uh, it is very expensive, that it won't last as much as uh, stainless steel rigging, uh, all those things that we know about. Well, I uh, talked to Brian Toss. I don't know if you've listened to those podcasts. I but, did, I did. But, yes. Yeah, but he seems to be pretty high on synthetic rigging now, too. Yes, and I think it makes sense. And uh, I don't know, well, because I was involved in this Caligo, the new Caligo website, uh, I had to visit the website countless times. And uh, as they uh, uploaded more and more content, uh, I would read uh, the new content. And I, I don't know if you know, but they have, uh, they, I mean, uh, the owners of Caligo, they have one boat with synthetic rigging in Mexico uh, that is very sunny and very hot. And it has lasted for, uh, I think, seven, eight years now. Uh, so right now they can promise seven, eight years from a synthetic rigging and probably more as time goes on because this is so new and uh, there are no evidences uh, how long it will last. So they are doing uh, experiments with their own boat in Mexico. And uh, if it can handle seven, eight years in Mexico, I think it will handle 10 more years in Portugal for sure. Yeah, actually, I'm looking at the website right now, and it's uh, there's a lot more material on there than there was the last time I checked, because yes. I know I went to the video section, and there was nothing there, and I went to a bunch of other sections, and there was nothing there, and I thought, and I thought well, it must be they're just developing it right now. So, yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, I did the rig building, the rig builder uh, area, where you, where you just, you just, uh, it's like a wizard thing. You put... Uh, what mast termination you need, what deck termination you need, what length uh, of a specific shroud, what diameter, and it tells you all the parts that you need, and you just press the add to cart button, 
and uh, you have the option to do it yourself or to have Caligo build uh, each shroud uh, for you so you can just install them uh, on your boat. So getting back to your boat, so do you have a windlass on your boat? Are you going to be putting a windlass on your boat? Do you have there anchors? Was... What, what, what other gear do you have? I have three anchors. <laughs> okay. Which is very funny. Uh, uh, but I have like a four or five millimeter chain when I should have like a six or seven or eight millimeter chain for my boat size displacement. And I had like 10 meters of chain, which is nothing. <laughs> there was no uh, nylon rope uh, on the uh, chain road. So it was just like 10 meters of chain, period, uh, which is not enough. So I'll ha I will have to upgrade that. Uh, but I have uh, windless. I have a uh, friends windless, which I think is very, very popular brand. Uh, I'm not 100% sure it works. Uh, I took it off the boat uh, as well. Uh, I will get to that uh, sometime in the future. I will check that it works, and if it works, uh, I believe it does. Uh, I, we didn't test that. Uh, if it does, I will just uh, regrease it and install it again. Uh, if not, uh, I will have to think about it. It sounds to me like you're really enjoying the building process. Is that, is that a safe uh, observation? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, I, I enjoy working with my hands. Uh, building things, rebuilding things, taking things apart. Uh, I enjoy woodworking. Um, actually, uh, since I remember myself, uh, I've been a woodworker. Uh, I had a family member that was a woodworker. And uh, when I was like five, six, seven years old, he taught me how to saw, how to plane the board flat, uh, to saw a straight line, how to work with chisels, with every woodworking tool available. And uh, this family member had a house where he would, every summer, I guess, he would build something on that house, a new balcony, a new terrace, uh, something. So I got to watch him uh, doing everything from plumbing to construction to carpentry to cabinet making, anything. And uh, it provided me with some great skills. And uh, I, when I was in school, um, I did these tests that you do to understand what you should pursue. Uh, furthering uh, your education. And I had two main uh, areas uh, that were of uh, high interest to me. One of them was uh, things related to technology, and the other thing was uh, things related to arts. Uh, so I, I had this uh, dilemma uh, that I had to choose between either going to either pursuing an arts, uh, maybe architecture uh, education, 
or going to uh, more uh, technology education. And I chose technology and I chose electronics. Uh, at the time, uh, I'm 38 now, at the time computer sciences weren't um, what they are now and uh, probably they weren't very appealing to me at the time. Uh, so I chose electronics and uh, I've, but I've always uh, liked to work with my hands, to do some sculpture things, to do painting, to draw. Uh, so I'm really enjoying the building process, uh, drawing the new cabinets for the V-Birth, the new cabinets for the main saloon, the new uh, saloon table, uh, that will have um, Nakashima, George Nakashima influence. You know George Nakashima? The woodworker, a Japanese woodworker. Uh, well, Japanese-American, I don't know. I think he was, he was born in America, in the U.S. Uh, so I, uh, I will have some uh, Nakashima influences on my boat. Uh, I, like the, I like, really like the way he, he works wood. Uh, with a very natural way. Uh, so I'm really, really enjoying the process. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> yes. And also because it's very therapeutic. Uh, I spend my working days in front of a computer, sitting down and dealing with crazy, crazy uh, IT problems. And uh, at the stage I am right now, uh, People usually call me when they have uh, serious problems in their projects. They don't call me when they are starting a new project and everything is easy and fine and uh, they think they have a solution for everything. They call me in the end when they realize they can't do it. Uh, they need to hire someone much more experienced uh, to go and solve a problem. And it has happened sometimes. I need to tell them after I see what's going on. Uh, even recently, I told the client, well, you really need to start again. There is no way I'm going to fix you a few bugs and this thing is going to work. So I spend my days dealing with all these difficult problems. And at the end of the day, my body is restless, but my mind is very tired. So I need to go and work on the boat where I can get a decent workout, like sending the top sides by hand. Uh, and I don't need to think. I just need to feel uh, the longboard going in the right direction. I understand that entirely, and you're not impatient to get the job done. You're so you're enjoying the building process, and for you, it you you really can't count the time you're spending building the boat, and and I don't think anybody can if they're an amateur builder, as a as a dollars and cents. You just either have to enjoy building or don't go down this path. I think. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that some people uh, that decide to buy an old boat, uh, like you Americans 
call them a fixer-upper, <coughs> which is a term I really hate. Uh, there are no... The whole idea of a fixer-upper is that you're going to buy it and you're going to fix a few things and it will work out well. <laughs> and sometimes there are no fix a few things and it will work out well. You really have to take the whole thing apart and start over. Uh, and my boat is actually that case. You, I really, I could fix a few things, put the boat on the water, and six months down the road, it would be back on the boatyard with more problems than what I had left. Maybe dismasted uh, because the rig was failing. Uh, the may the. Uh, what they call that, the, um, oh man, the stainless steel cable that goes to the four peak. Oh, the four stay? Yeah, the four, yeah, okay. The four stay uh, at the top of the mast where the roller furling gear ends. Uh, the four stay is seven millimeters. Uh, at that specific point where the file of the Genoa turns around it was like five millimeters mm. okay mm -hmm. so uh, it was about to break <laughs> in a serious blow right uh well another thing uh when i took the rig down uh i laid the mast on some saw horses and i noticed that uh like every other rivet that uh fastened the mainsail track to the mast uh, had lost uh, the head. Okay, so most rivets were gone. And so I proceeded to rem remove all the rivets. As soon as I touched the drill bit on the rivets that had a head, it would break. The, uh, the rivets would break or the drill bit would break? the rivets would break. The rivet head would just fly away as soon as the drill bit would touch it. So every rivet on uh, attaching that sail track to the mast uh, had failed. So in a serious blow, I think, what could happen was that the, the main sail would be ripped from the mast. Uh, were those rivets, were they mono rivets at least so that they didn't have the, uh, the corrosion <laughs> no. of stainless steel rivets? <laughs> okay. No, no, but one good thing, they were aluminum rivets. I don't have any corrosion issues, but uh, it didn't have any resistance. But there is one interesting thing to this story that most people advocate mono rivets because they are stronger than aluminium rivets and don't have the same uh, corrosion issues uh, that you would have with stainless rivets. But these rivets, aluminium rivets, have 30 plus years. So that's not bad. That's pretty good. Especially yes. the t price differential between Monel and aluminum. Yes, I priced, well, the cheapest price I could get for Monel rivets uh, was in Ireland, and it would be like 50 cents uh, of a euro uh, for each rivet. 
but in hundreds. And uh, aluminium rivets uh, would cost like uh, one-fifth of the price, maybe less. Yeah, so even if I, could, I would have to replace the rivets every 10 years, every 20 years, uh, it's still okay, yeah. It's still okay, yeah. 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 Now let's, let's uh, wind it up because we've been on the phone almost about an hour. But let me ask you, if you're going to give some advice to somebody looking at going down this path that you've chosen to go down, which is buy an older boat and, and make it seaworthy, what, what key advice would you give that person? Wow. Uh, well, the first advice I would give... Uh, is uh, to hire a proper marine surveyor, which, to my knowledge, there are none in Portugal, proper marine surveyors, that is. Uh, the, the one guy closest to a marine surveyor that I could speak with uh, was in the Algarve, and he wasn't willing to travel to Lisbon. And he told me, well, if you take a few pictures and you send me those pictures, I can look at those and see you if I, and tell you if I see any problems, uh, which wasn't good for me. So I didn't even bother sending him pictures. Uh, so hire a marine surveyor, a good one, that can really tell you what's going on. Because if a marine surveyor would see that airline crack going all around the boat, he would probably know... Now I know. Now, now if I see another boat like that, I will know for sure. But a proper marine surveyor could probably tell me, well, there is a problem in the hole to deck joint uh, that needs to be fixed, that needs to be fixed like this, and it will cost you like that, and uh, it will take you this amount of time. And maybe that could uh, have benefited me in the negotiation. Uh, maybe I would buy the boat for $5,000. <laughs> right. <laughs> or he needs to find somebody that doesn't know as much as you do, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing besides that uh, is only do it if you really enjoy the process. If you really enjoy building, rebuilding, taking things apart. If not, uh, move on. Go and buy a new boat, go and buy a newer boat without uh, many years, many problems. Uh, but if you have time, if you have skill, if you have patience, uh, you can do it. Otherwise, I don't think so. There are, a few, there are quite a few boats uh, at the boatyard I'm at. Uh, that started as project boats, and they have been literally abandoned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people don't realize how much work it really takes and how much time it really takes. Yes, and after a few months of taking the boat apart, they give up. Because they don't enjoy the process. Yes, yes. Maybe they don't enjoy the process. And I, I, I know that I spent like two, three, maybe four months just taking things apart. And I haven't taken all the boat apart. The boat, the, the engine room is still intact. The chart table is still intact. The galley is still intact. So do it if you love 
if you enjoy it. And and for you and me, we're both similar because uh, I, like you, I don't work in the same industry, but I sit at a desk and stare at a computer screen all day long. And I move numbers from one ledger to another ledger. I mean, that's basically what I do. I'm a, I manage investment portfolios. Yeah. And to actually build something and see something that you've physically done to me, gives me a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And I think you, you get the same sense of satisfaction yourself. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, was, I was at the boat yard one day, one Saturday morning, and they work. Uh, the boat yard is uh, working on Saturday mornings, uh, like uh, half of the employees go to work. Uh, and uh, so, but things are very slow on Saturday mornings. And the boatyard manager was going by, and uh, he was—he had lots of time, so he started staring at what I was doing. And uh, I had just finished uh, the whole to deck giant, and he told me, "Well, you did a brilliant job there. Uh, it would take us, us, boatyard professionals." Uh, two to three weeks to do what you did. And they saw the whole process, fiberglassing, uh, everything, fairing, everything. And when they tell me it would take us, like maybe two employees working full time, two to three weeks, if it takes me two months, three months to do what they would do in three weeks, I'm happy. And uh, if they tell me that I'm doing a good job uh, and they know what they should be doing, uh, I'm happy. So what are your long-term plans? You're going to get the boat in the water next year. Probably it's going to take you another year to get it really ship shape. And are you going to go travel, going to go into the med and do some sailing? What are your long-term plans? Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm planning to launch the boat with the exterior completed uh, this summer and uh, finish the interior uh, within another year, two years, depending on how, how I go. Because uh, now the boat is out of the water, uh, so I can't go sailing. But if the boat is in the water and I can go sailing, I will have to decide, do I want to go sailing do I want to work on the boat? So maybe I will split it 50-50. So it won't be a year. Maybe it will two or three years. Louis, do you um, have any children? Do you have any children? And is your wife on board on this whole project? Well, some days she is. Some days she isn't. <laughs> some days she tells me, well, why don't you go to work on the boat? It's Sunday. It's good weather. You can do some work and... Uh, maybe next summer we go for go sailing and it will be great. Uh, we will take some friends and it will be a great day sailing. Uh, she even asked me, well, do you want to take the boat to the Algarve where we usually go on holiday? And I said, sure, when the boat is ready, I want to take the boat to the Algarve. Uh, and we have the boat there and some days we go to the beach, some days we go sailing. Uh, and yes, I have two children. Uh, one is three, one, the other is eight. So, uh, they are still very young to go long, long voyaging. 
but um, someday I would like to go uh, on a long voyage. I have, I have two or three plans. Like uh, one plan is to go to the Algarve, then Gibraltar, then south coast of Spain. And that could be done uh, within a few weeks in the summer. Uh, then uh, I have this other idea of sailing to Madeira. Uh, you know Madeira? Uh, it's five, 500 nautical miles southwest of Portugal. Right. And I would pronounce so, that Madeira, but that's okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's, it would be a good ocean shakedown. Uh, to go 500 miles offshore to Madeira. Uh, we also have uh, islands in the Azores, uh, very popular for all the transatlantic sailors, uh, which is uh, 800 nautical miles from uh, Portugal. Uh, I'd like to go there as well by sailboat. So uh, I have the, these uh, three destinations to go. And then I have this dream of going to Cuba. Uh, yeah, I have been, I've been in Havana uh, 10 years ago. Uh, it was quite an experience. Have you been to Havana? I've never, I've never been to Havana, no. No, it's um, traveling in time. If you ask me very briefly how I would put it, I would say it's like traveling in time. Well, at least until the American multinationals move yeah, in there. Yeah, and, and until there is a McDonald's in every corner. But until then, it's like traveling in time. And I really, really loved it. And, uh, well, some people would say I would like to go to the Caribbean. Uh, I would go, I would like to go to Havana. Then, from Havana, through the Panama Canal, through the Pacific through the Cape Horn, back to Lisbon. And, but this is a, a dream. <laughs> crossing the Horn, crossing the Panama Canal, and going across the Atlantic. Well, Lewis, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you for reaching out to me and giving me those resources, and let's keep in touch. If I'm ever in Portugal, I will look you up. Well, sure, sure you do. Uh, if you ever come to Portugal, give me a call, drop me an email. And we will meet. All right. It's been fun talking to you, too. Thank you so much, Lewis. Joel, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joel. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs> the 
The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character who played the character of Joel Goodson.